Welcome to Delayed Live from Med City. We're here with Colleen Payton. Um, are you new to Atlanta? You're not new, right? No, I've been here since '99. A poet who is the latest uh, author on the Fort Da book imprint from Public Domain Incorporated. So uh, we had a Fort Da party recently at the house here, and uh, I thought it would be a good idea to have. Colleen, talk about, well, I don't know, what are we going to talk about? Fort Da and public domain, your impressions. I was interested in your impressions of of that, as well as some of your own work, you know, which you can talk about a little bit. But um, um, so you are a poet. I am a poet at the moment. I've been, uh, I've done some fiction and some journalism, uh, but I'm back to doing poetry and I've been writing uh, poetry steadily and fairly exclusively for the past two or three years. And the chapbook that was published by Fort Dye is called The Naked Prince. That's right, right. yeah. And then from whence the title? Um, it's a phrase from um, the central poem and uh, it all, all, a lot of these poems uh, use the fairy tale motif and um, uh, I deliberately kind of drew a thread uh, through a fairy tale, and so um, the title partly uh, announces that as a as a th a theme. Mm -hmm. Well, you've been writing poetry obviously for a while, right? You were you went to the University of Chicago I in did. literary studies, or that's right, English. Yeah, literature. yeah, right. English English language and English literature. And literature, and uh, so you've lived in Atlanta. For I lived. I've lived here since 1999, and I was in Seattle before that mm -hmm. for 13 years. So you've just gotten involved in the Atlanta literary culture, I guess you would say, recently, right? With yeah. your stepping into iDrum and the <laughs> most way I phrase that, stepping into iDrum and the literary community uh, around that with the the monthly literary night that Ed Hall hosts. Mm -hmm. So do you have any general impressions of how that's going and, how, and its relationship to the Atlanta scene in general? Or have you formulated any ideas or general um, Yes, I uh, am really, really pleased to be working with a local community of artists in every genre. Um, I am uh, learning a lot uh, and uh, certainly it's helped me, uh, talking to other artists has helped me uh, to focus and understand my own work better um, and my place here and uh, helped me to uh, get rid of um, a kind of hangover I had of publishing nationally and internationally. Uh, mostly journalism concerning the arts and specifically dance and um, it's something that I haven't been enjoying and kind of have been doing perfunctorily just to keep my foot in the door and um, because things are working out so well locally and because I'm enjoying it so much I've uh, made a conscious decision to shift my focus into the local scene um, and I'm uh, grateful and delighted that the um, community, Atlanta and iDrum in particular, has offered me um, that open door. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember an event at iDrum uh, one time about globalism wherein 
all the artists there were extolling the virtues of globalism, and I thought it was sort of at the, at the expense of the local, which is often the case now with globalism, it's, uh, although some of the tide seems to be turning. But really, everybody is from someplace, even on the net. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not an, an effaced presence. And if you can, you, sometimes you can detect some accent, so to speak, on the net, the way design happens and things like that. But everybody comes from some place. Now, they may not want to be from that place. They may want to go other places. Um, but uh, globalism, I think, has been somewhat overplayed. Maybe artists just want to travel a lot, which is a mm -hmm. good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you think of some of the most respected authors, I'm now from Mississippi, so I think of Faulkner, who was very embedded in Mississippi in the South, and yet did a very American, modernistic Mm -hmm. kind of sort of writing there. Um, so I think really, and you know, I'm, public domain itself is, um, you know, always got better reception actually outside of Atlanta in the South than it did here. So I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth. But um, my most recent realization is that even the most abstruse theory comes from a place and is affected by a place and the machinations that go on in, in some place. You know. um, my four-year-old son is running around the table, so it's kind of hard to pay attention. <laughs> um, so do you have any thoughts about um, localism, so to speak, as opposed to... Uh, and, you know, in my uh, most... The authors that I most appreciate are not necessarily Southern writers. I mean, other mm -hmm. than the panoply of, you know, the ones that we would mm -hmm. all put forward. But I, I'm I'm sort of German, a German Jew, <laughs> even though I was born in Mississippi. Um, you know, uh, uh, hard shell Baptists, as they used to call them. But all of my interests have been in Walter Benjamin and Heidegger and Derrida, the French and the Germans, and the whole. Uh, Souffle of philosophical concerns that they've brought forward in post right. uh, structural continentalism, I guess you would uh -huh. say. So, anyway, it's a thing that I've tossed around in my own head. I don't know if that's something that's ever been of any uh, concern or if it's ever inhibited you or inhabited you or freed you from thinking in terms of localism or as opposed to globalism. Because like, what brought it up was thinking about in terms of publishing. Mm -hmm. and becoming more widely known, yeah, and the, what happens when that happens? Yeah, I studied those thinkers at at University of Chicago, and of course that they've had an influence on me, um, and but these days, and it's a good thing overall. But these days, everyone's an artist, you know, mm -hmm. and when everyone's an artist, it's very difficult to. Uh, you know, to read everybody and to see everyone's work and to get as deeply involved as you should have, as you should. And maybe it just means I'm not that smart, but I'm, I'm finding that if I focus locally, it's just better for me. And it doesn't mean that I'm shutting out um, the work and thought of people from other places. I'm just not promoting my own stuff 
in other places anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, as I say, as a conscious decision, not mm-hmm. something I want to do right now. And that can change. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the case of, again, of public domain, when, um, you know, what, pu- whatever public domain was doing when it was at its height was better known outside of Atlanta. I don't know whether that's than in, I don't know whether that's an indictment of public domain or an indictment of Atlanta, or not even thinking in terms of any sort of ethical correlate there, but just just the way some sorts of thought patterns happen to go, you know, that, um, uh, well, you know, the work that uh, you do has a rarefied quality. Um, it's not mm-hmm. for everyone. Well, that's, that's pretty true. Sometimes I think it's not even for myself. <laughs> I go back and read some of the old, my older things, and I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> how, how long have you been writing about philosophy? Well, I went to graduate school in philosophy, actually. And, um, and this was at Tulane, right? No, no, at the uh, University of Georgia. Okay. Graduate school. And um, I first went to anthropology, into anthropology, no, philosophy. And I really disliked the de- department there because I had just read, this is in like 1971, I just read Michel Foucault's The Order of Things. and I. You know, I had underlined lots of stuff. I couldn't understand it really, but I really loved the language there. And I would say whether I understood what the thoughts were about, but there seemed to be something very profound there when I read a lot of American philosophy, which is sort of uh, ordinary language analysis, as they called it. It didn't seem very profound at all. It didn't seem to be connected to life or literature or art or things like that, whereas European philosophy did. I mean, it's a long story. And then I, I went into anthropology under the thinking that that would be a better situation. And then I just stopped all kind of academic work, period, and did construction work for a long time, you know, manual labor sorts of things. So you went through a period of not writing? Right. Long period. And then um, I found myself when I was doing construction work coming home and reading articles about Wittgenstein. Mm-hmm. You know? But then in 91, um, public domain got cranked back up again. It was formerly a performance outfit that was not a 501c3. When I got involved with some other people, we got a 501c3 and started Perforations, which was the journal, uh, and making these fancy box sets for a while. Very limited edition, had art stuff, computer stuff, Theory stuff, writing stuff. Perforations was published about once a year. Is that right? No, no. It was, it was supposed to be a quarterly. It, and, and, it, and it really was a quarterly. It, well, it, it published four times a year. It, uh, loosely, I mean, it was yeah. very loose. Sort of publishing schedule, like some journals you'll see. They're now they're dated um, June. 2009 and it's 2013, so they're yeah. <laughs> far behind on their publishing schedule. But uh, it was very hard to put them together, um, inexpensive, and I sort of went under the table underground to get them published hmm. for free, basically. And uh, then the net came along and we ported them over to the net, and it became whenever I could think of a new idea and write a call for it, then it would become uh, an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, of course, with the net, at that time, you know, you had cadres of people in all the major campuses around the world who were computer geeks and people, and they were allied friends. 
And so I think a lot of the audience uh, probably were those people. You know, but even by those standards, it was pretty rarefied, which I, you know, never has really bothered me that much because, um, you know, I just, um, I just do what I think is appropriate, and mm -hmm. then let the ships fall where they may. About right. that. But I, I'll have to say that lately, um, maybe this is the messianic quality in that Judeo-German <laughs> nexus coming up is that I, in starting the BIOS wing of Fort Da, um, in fact I want to change it to a term that means uh, common life or life together, which would be more uh, not away from the theoretical aspects of things, which is still what I do most of the reading in, but to try to include people around me in that same path mm -hmm. who are going along similar sorts of paths, mm -hmm. although it may not look like that from the well, you do a, you know, you have the, um, you know, garden art um, uh, company that you you and uh, Sloan, your wife, are working right. on together, mm -hmm. which seems to be very uh, community oriented and uh, a philosophical venture mm -hmm. um, rolled in together. Mm -hmm. Well, Sloan is very much more community oriented than I am. I, I say that, although you know, I was the executive director of Idrum for a while. So there's a certain amount of community effort to be involved there, and I did. I remember one time I did a, a studio. They would Georgia Tech would ask some of the architecture classes would ask artists, local people, to sit in with their studios with their students and talk about them. So I was introduced as an art activist at one time, and I thought afterwards, what art <laughs> activist? And I realized that I was you know had been going to lots of meetings and talking about uh, how to make Atlanta a better place because I was always complaining about the miasmic atmosphere of Atlanta, mm -hmm. Atlanta arts. Uh, so I guess in some ways which I'm is still, Which is still an issue here. I think it is still an issue. I, I mean... That and uh, fragmentation. Mm -hmm. Well, I think any city that's large enough you're going to have a lot of fragmentation, artists in different segments doing different sorts of things, but um, I don't know, I mean the good thing about iDrum is that it, is it covered the waterfront, so to speak, from international people who came in to very local people, you know, sometimes in the same block, mm -hmm. so to speak, yeah. of iDrum, and it kind of mashed them all together. And for some people, perhaps, that creates questions of value. Um, you know, when doing that comparison, but you know, in order to do that, first you have to be able to tell me what you think art is and what the value of art is, you know, and so if they can't say that, then they don't really, I don't know why they would value the internationalist over the person down the street who is doing something, which is always what Atlanta does. It always mm -hmm. brings in people from the outside for the mm -hmm. big exemplars of the historical current of art. Mm -hmm. And then that's another whole question or conversation about what exactly that means, art with a big A and art with a little A, I guess you'd say, or writing with a big W and writing with a little W. Do you feel like your, um, uh, your métier as a philosopher has had a, just looking back from now, uh, back to 1961 or 67, do you feel that there's been a partic particular trajectory? Can you see a pattern now? 
Well, in some ways, yeah. I mean, I, I very much was a was a fan of the '60s, even though I only participated as a lot of people in areas, or at least this is the perception a lot of, that a lot of people have. At the same time, that we were all in some sort of revolutionary spirit of something that was going to be unveiled, something that was going to happen any day. You know, the revolution was upon us. Big. The apocalypse was happening. Right, basically. the revolution the re will not be televised. Right, exactly. Yeah. And of course, you know, everything really collapsed at a certain point, and um, what I call turbo capitalism kicked in, which is where we are right now. And kind How of do you feel game. about that? That the generation that you know created, you know, Allen Ginsberg's Flower Power, mm -hmm. and you know, was so. Uh, adamant about peace and disarmament and, um, you know, the elimination of large uh, uh, controlling uh, bodies that it has been an arm in creating that very thing that's now uh, so pervasive. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? Well, I think that even at the time, uh, I mean, it seemed like every every kid under the age of 25 was a revolutionary at the time. Yeah. But we know now, in retrospect, that it was only a small handful of people. The rest of the people were just there for partying and a right. good time. Right, it, it was in style. It's like a lot of art shows you go to. Most of the people there are for a good time and for free beer and cheese, you know, and things yeah. like that. Which is, hey, I've been there. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But uh, it does a disservice. Those, but then those are the people, those hangers on, the people who then came in and became giant developers. You know, the people from the 60s, people of my generation, are the people who put a point on on the on the steel marble, you know, so to speak. Um, so what I most miss about that whole, I mean, and as is the case now, everybody says, well, you 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 know, you're playing a nostalgia card or golden age card, but I think that uh, there was a kind of visionary impulse then that's somewhat missing now. Uh, and my interest in philosophy, I realize, has that quality to it. You know, when you say, you, when you say that someone's writing or stylistics is esoteric, you can mean that in several different ways. Either that it's not, you can't ferret out the language very well or that um, you don't know what the words are, the sentences are too long, you know, you have a sentence that's a whole paragraph, things like that, you know, the typical conundrum for the writer of dense topics. Or you can say that you're writing about something that's not fully visible, mm -hmm. esoteric as, as in occult topics, uh, things that can't be spoken about now in an environment of mechanical capitalist exploitation of the environment, you know, whose main um, instrument is the scalpel and dissection rather than healing and becoming a new, transformed, more glorious sort of preacher. You don't really hear stuff like that, you know, Ginsburg and, um, and those sorts of folks, the Beats, and even the hippies early on and they were visionary movements in a way, mm -hmm. and that's all gone. It's, everything seems to be, have become very flattened and um, um, sort of matter-of-fact about the way the world is. And there's just a sameness, sameness everywhere right. in the United States. Yeah. 
you know, you pick up and uh, drop yourself, you're in Atlanta and you go to Chicago, mm-hmm. and you can find your way around because the Chili's and the Home Depot, they're all and exactly the, the same. Yeah, they're yeah. all in the same shopping center every place you go. Yeah, and the air is the same every yeah. place you go. It was when I went out to Santa Fe the first time, I was very disappointed. There's a whole way of going into to Santa Fe. That where you're going through Buford Highway, mm-hmm. basically, exactly what you're saying. The only way you can tell that you're not in Buford Highway are the mountains around it. Right. And that's the case, I guess, with every place. We're pulling, making a bubble over ourselves and pulling it around us. In fact, there's a new, um, I saw a TV show called The Bubble, mm-hmm. which is the way that a culture has of allegorizing its own relationship to its technology and to the way that it's cutting things off from their own immediate touch and, and environment. So, um, you know, so my interest in the, in the difficult writing, such as it is, is really an interest in visionary writing. It's not an interest in trying to duplicate Heidegger or even follow Heidegger or even to, or Derrida, who is one of my heroes. Uh, I mean, at a certain point, you know, they just, they do what they do and you just, you know, you're doing what you do, and I mean, I'm certainly not a scholar of any of these people. Uh, I, I use them to my, for my own purposes. Mm-hmm. In fact, most scholars would see them and think, oh, get this guy out of here, you know, he's too, as they say, ludic, too playful mm-hmm. in his approach to these things. Well, the deconstructionists would like that. Uh, they would. Deconstruction, uh, it's like Nietzsche said about uh, Christ, the last Christian died on the cross. I think the last deconstructionist died first and last in a few years back when Derrida died, you know. Um, and so you have a lot of people who have taken on his methodology, and I think it was a very, his methodology was that of a poet. If you were to start writing like Rilke, let's say, you know, okay, you're never going to be Rilke, okay? You're just writing like Rilke. And so a lot of people are never going to be Derrida, no matter how, what a huge influence he had on, uh, on the world. You're going to be writing like him. But his, his impulse, I think, was is more of an in, poetic impulse an autobiographical impulse. I'm reading a, uh, in fact, a biography, a recent biography called Jacques Derrida by Benoit Peters, and it's obvious that, you know, he his themes came out of Algeria, where he was raised and born, and his whole kind of environment. I mean, there's something a remainder there that can't be quite exemplified, but he was very definitely a local boy, you know, in some respect, mm-hmm. and remained that. But his language, you know, people would find it hard to penetrate, because you've got to write in not only locally, but you've got to put it in, in global terms if you have any kind of aspiration to anything whatsoever. You know, like you're publishing, fear of publishing, if you don't get it out uh, somewhere, you know, you're going to remain a basement painter, so to speak, yeah. or a basement writer. Until you die, somebody may find your papers, and then they got to go through the whole process of making that happen. You right, know? and um, evaluation, too. Is, mm-hmm. this, is, this, uh, is this good stuff that uh, is worth the investment for me mm-hmm. in time? See, I don't, I don't, I don't go... Your writing is not like that. Your writing is not impenetrable. Um, I don't think it is either, but, you know... Uh, you know, you you start in the concrete, and you move out into you know the the high country of the mind. Mm-hmm. But you come right back. You yeah. come back to the hut. Right. Well, that's in fact what um, public domain's motto was. Uh, 
in theory is, and well, our insignia says the intersection of theory, community, art, and um, technology. So, and it, basically where the rubber meets the road. So, if you're going to make the car run, you've got to be able to talk about the wheel and, you know, but you've also got to be able to lift the car up and just let it move on its own accord, so to speak, although that's a weird kind of image. Um, so, I, but I, I don't think it's impenetrable. I think people, maybe people's reading habits are not uh, such... I mean, we're not in Paris, or we're not in Stuttgart or Berlin, you know, where there's a tradition of of non-academic sorts of people, or, or London for that matter, mm -hmm. doing writing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you feel kind of on the outskirts of uh, the provinces, so to speak, um, when, you're, when you're dealing with some of these kinds of issues. But, you know, in order to it's deal here with too, you know, Robert Persick was in Montana, mm -hmm. and he did it mm -hmm. in Bozeman. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the reason why I was going to say that you can't, you know, you can't sort of judge. Okay, was well, this going to be accepted or not? Because I, you know, I don't want to spend twenty years of my life doing this and find that it's not worth anything. Well, that ain't the way it works. Right. You know, you die, and you don't know whether it's. That's right. You don't know anything about what happened to it, where it went, who it's for. Did you do any good? Was it totally worthless? Mm -hmm. You just do it, you know? Right. This has happened with very famous people. I mean, Mozart. Mm -hmm. Famous people and people that we Randall. still don't know anything about. Right. So and people we don't know about now. It could be a crapshoot, you know? Right. You know but so if that's the reason why one is doing it, then probably one is not doing it for the right reason. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, I mean, you know, and also the whole cult of celebrity them now is very toxic and... and uh, a malforming, I think, of the whole culture, basically. Mm -hmm. Even politics now is a culture of celebritydom mm -hmm. uh, because there's a great sexiness and power to the image and the projection of people in power. And everybody wants to be in power now. The, the thing about everybody being an artist, everybody also is their own dictator. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it makes it difficult for those people who are less large in ego. <laughs> Uh, because in a situation of anarchy, those people would be the ones, and the ones who are psychopaths would be the ones that make the biggest mark. Mm -hmm. And that's probably how um, the direction we're turning now, in fact. I mean, if you look at the CEOs and if you look at uh, so-called turbo-capitalism, that seems to be the case. Uh, I don't know how that affects art. I know that... Uh, what do you make of the conscious, conscienceness of you know, of this uh, grand money, grand power, uh, uh, regardlessness for uh, how it's uh, perverting and uh, dumbing down the culture. What do I make of it? Yeah, the conscienceless. Well, I, I can't even say that Consciousnessless. Word. Consciousness. <laughs> anyway, I know what you mean. No yes. conscience. No right. conscience. There right. we go. Uh, well, you remember um, Hannah Arendt wrote a book about called Eichmann in Jerusalem, wherein she was taken to task by intelligentsia at, at the time during the Nuremberg trials or afterwards by saying that it was actually the thuggery of the shopkeeper, mm -hmm. basically the, bana the, the banality of evil, mm -hmm. 
And I think that's the case with capitalism. I mean, in a, in a way, it's even worse because at a certain point, you can see the banality of evil. You know, some guy who facilitates terrible kinds of acts, but it's harder to see a corporate, like Monsanto, a corporate entity's actions because at the same time, for some people, they appear to be benevolent. So there's a certain hiddenness and obscuring of, of motivations with some of these people. But I think that the, it seems to me that the, the uh, psychopathy at the top of the pyramid seems to be undeniable, you know, and there's no reasoning with a psychopath. They simply, um, they want to do what they want to do, regardless of what the consequences are. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, I don't think it, uh, in some ways, you know, again, in my Judeo-German nexus in critical theory, uh, some people may think that I'm too negative about, uh, about things. Um, but it's sometimes it's not it's hard not to be, and yet at the same time, like this morning, I was reading Rob Brzezinski's, not sure how you pronounce his last name, the horoscope guy mm -hmm. from Noya. Mm -hmm. He's so damn positive and optimistic. It's like you know, it gives me the heebie-jeebies in some <laughs> yeah. ways, you know. And yet at the same time, uh, as a, as a person who has an uh, an affinity or a liking of the visionary experience and what that's all about. There is an ecstatic component to that whole thing, to writing, to art. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes one can think oneself into a negative hole, but then again, you've got all the environment around you that helps to shovel the dirt in on top of you sometimes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, um, the front page of the Sunday Times uh, this past weekend, uh, this is the this is the twelfth, so it would have been the ninth. Mm -hmm. um, basically, it had a theme, and the theme was surveillance. Surveillance day. Well, we see that now. Right. And uh, every article, in a way, was a defense of uh, the Obama administration's um, use of surveillance uh, in every case. So it claims to. Uh, to identify and track international, very specifically mm -hmm. use that word sure. every time, international terrorists. Um, but obviously the frightening thing about this, even if that's sincere, although we don't feel that that's sincere, mm -hmm. we feel all the time that we're being watched. Mm -hmm. We see sure. evidence that we're being watched, um, that, uh, that that technology is easily transformed into something else. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very big brother. And uh, our generation, yours and mine, we created this. Sure. Stuff. Well, I think we're turning into different sort of, uh, a different sort of creature than uh, we were 300 years ago. Uh, and I say that after reading Rob Brzezinski's thing, saying, you know, we live longer now, we're healthier, we're happier. We are, and he was saying we're different sort of creatures than our great grandparents were as regards to the baselines of mm -hmm. health and intelligence and things mm -hmm. like that. But I, what I mean by that is that we're turning into a different, definitely different sort of creature because of the technologies that we have, whether it's surveillance techniques which have become uh, awesomely, uh, awesome fascistic potential there. Right. I mean, to the point of putting in. 
DNA chips or coding your DNA in some fashion so that you can be read from a satellite. I mean, they're just incredible. They're science fictional. Satellite now. You can be now. They're, they're just science fictional qualities to this. And it's happened like just almost instantly. Because I remember, you know, the, back in the early 90s when perforations was starting, and, you know, people were talking about conspiracies and. Uh, but everything seemed kind of like benign and childlike compared to now. It feels like these vast That's forces so are behind the scenes. Yeah. They're twisting and turning, uh, manipulating things. And but then some people say, well, the thing with Snowden, you know, the guy who, who the whistleblower who brought about all this stuff, information about these new security uh, surveillance mechanisms, uh, is a positive thing, and that more people are coming forward and that we're just in a jumbled up, broken ground period of history when uh, we're making, we're breaking ground for a new form of what it is to be human. But uh, we know from experience, we've seen it happen throughout history, that new technologies, mm -hmm. however ideal uh, they seem when they're created, are always, always used for the power war, mm -hmm. military, mm -hmm. complexes of the day. Mm -hmm. In fact, the military usually is the one, are, are the ones responsible for the development of in the first place. Mm -hmm. Take uh, space exploration, which I am an unabashed advocate of, even though, you know, a lot of leftist type people saying, or, you know, have said, well, let's concentrate on people at home, blah, blah, blah. But that's, I don't think that's what, um, humans are best at just keeping your nose to the grindstone of taking care of Uncle Ned. I mean, we've got to have that. We've got to do mm -hmm. it. That's one of the problems now that we're not doing it sufficiently, uh, efficiently. We are. We are. It's just that the peasants now have four cars and four TVs yeah, and exactly. four computers. Exactly. The idea of, of poverty has, has line has shifted uh, radically. So what that says to me is that the top 1% have access to technologies regarding the bios, that is, the mechanisms for life enhancement, life extension, and life transformation, and I mean that in a fundamental sense, of all kinds of recombinant genetic DNA technologies that are being developed, and uh, cybernetic technologies for the implanting into the human, just incredible sorts of vistas open up. Uh, like what the Russian, Russian cosmist in the 19th century talked about with uh, Fodor Fedorov, who we were talking about immortality, and that the fact that the, the, the main duty of the Christian church, this was Fedorov speaking then, was to bring back all of the dead through technology. I mean, it's a fantastic idea. I mean, it doesn't even make sense when you think of, you know, when you first think about it. But the, the, the hubris of that statement and, and the largeness of it uh, is kind of what humans should be thinking about anyway, rather than this stuff about austerity. And I mean, there's just something radically wrong with the way that we're that we're structuring our lives, and our lifestyles, and our approaches to the mind and to the body. Um, it's just mind-boggling, really, when you consider when you all you have to do is read a lot of stuff that's out there about what's going on and. 
and the possibility of transforming people. But who has access to this? Not the guy down the street, not myself, perhaps probably not you either. You no. Know. It's a no, guy who's making turn of like the we're, we're test subjects. I was reading again today from uh, Sunday Times that uh, diabetes was 1% in the population of Vietnam in the mid 90s, and it's now 6%. Wow. And, um, you know, in hospitals all over the country, every day, doctors spend the whole day mm -hmm. remo removing putrefied skin from patients, wow. one after the other, a hack job, hack, mm -hmm. hack, hack. Mm -hmm. And these people are not obese. Mm. They have no idea why there's this enormous rise in diabetes. And they say, Western culture, you know, the article didn't even make sense. Mm. I don't know how it got into the times it was so disconnected. Mm. Hmm. You know, what was missing, you know, that's what you ask yourself. You read this shit and you say, what is missing from this, this, this article here, from this, inf this set of information? Hmm. Something. So you're saying what was missing, it was some sort of class analysis of why people there are getting a certain kind of treatment or not getting a certain sort of treatment or the, their well, health why is so there in the first place. In the first place right? why, they're, they're, why they're having this rise in diabetes yeah. in particular in a population that does not have uh, Western ills. Yeah. You can't blame it on KFC. It's right. not KFC. Right. It's made that, that enormous mm -hmm. uh, surge in, hmm. in, a, in a problem like this. So they didn't have any kind of explanation uh, they, s they said something about um, uh, it seemed to be that there was a population of people who had grown up uh, pretty much at starvation levels on farmlands in their youth and then moved into cities. And so that maybe there was a connection there, that not having, huh. uh, having a history of, um, of uh, a struggling insulin made their bodies unprepared to cope with insulin hmm. with a normal you know, city market uh, diet. But mm -hmm. it, that just seemed like a stretch to me. Where's, mm -hmm. Where was the evidence of that? Mm -hmm. There was no evidence. Mm -hmm. Well, so, so you took from that, uh, uh, what did you take from that? Um, I took from that, that... Um, I mean, as regards either, to Western culture. There's either that there, there's a lot that we don't understand about what our technologies are doing to us, or a lot of uh, information that we're not getting. Mm -hmm. By the uh, the uh, intelligentsia yeah. or the the, the elite, um, right? Who do understand um, it? The CEOs, etc. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the Monsanto is a perfect example of that. Uh, it's no point going into the whole history of Monsanto, but it increasingly seems like a. Uh, demonic organization in right. some respects, you know. But wasn't Monsanto part of uh, the Great Society, the vision that the we green could revolution. Feed, feed the world right. in the 1960s right. and 70s? Yeah. Right. And also tailed in onto the whole ethanol revolution, so-called, which has plowed under many, many farms and planted over millions of acres of corn, which now is said is is not a viable proposition because the amount of energy going into it is not doesn't add up when as you fuel your car you know you're using more energy than getting out petroleum and it costs more basically and it's also it's, it's destroying large parts of uh, agricultural land with a monoculture mm -hmm. so anyway the um, 
But you know, one one blight could exactly knock out. So my whole thing with it's not negativity, but it's saying that rationalism has its limits. I've had conversations with people recently online who have very high regard for science, which I do too in a way, but uh, you know, I have a higher regard for humans because I am one, some people say. <laughs> and, um, and so science is a human sort of occupation with the same kinds of, it's not a, it's not a godly, it, no more than a preacher, it's not a godly, a God-sent kind of thing other than everything is, you might say. So, but a lot of people hold it to be the thing, the, 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 um, the thing that should hold sway in all considerations over ethics, morals, um, how we live our life, it should be some sort of scientific basis. I don't know how that, that would work, because love is not a rational equation, hate is not a rational equation. All the things that drive humans, all the passions are not rational equations. People who have a passion for science is not rational. You know? Yeah, but it's it's uh, it's what it it's the impetus for everything. Yeah. Um, so in some regards, that's why art and poetry is so important because it gives free rein rein to uh, some of the darker sides of human dark in the sense they can't be fully explicated that they are manifestations of this darkness. They may be blazingly beautiful, life-filled things, but they may also come from very dark places inside. Mm -hmm. The human, you know. Um, so, what do you think will happen next? And that's a hard question for me to ask because I don't believe that anyone knows the future, in spite of the fact that people spend a lot of time making predictions about it. But I'm going to ask you that anyway. Do you think that there is enough of um, a grassroots ferment and protest against what's happening now that we will experience some kind of a revolution that will shake off this big brother technology substitute mythology uh, culture mm. it's worldwide uh, basically I don't think so because uh, technology is a thing that comes from inside us it's a, it's a, it's, it's not human, but it's inside the human. Uh, it's like a, uh, a thorn, if you want to put it that way, that the humans, humans have made, but yet still sticks us and prods us forward. So all these forms of technology, surveillance, uh, manipulation of the soma, the the bodily substrate, and the the mind, um, they're all manifestations of these sharp sticks that we started a long time ago. Right, to poke we people. need to make tools. We have to make tools and we have to and we're we've become very intelligent creatures and we have to make more and more sophisticated tools and, and so what we're doing is becoming the tool. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're going to create artificial intelligence and then they do all the stuff for it. It's like we're creating ourselves. We're creating the artificial intelligence an image of ourselves, and then we're recreating ourselves to meet the artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Artificial intelligence may never become artificially intelligent or superhuman intelligent, but it will become intelligent enough and we will become dumb enough that we'll meet it halfway and we'll mesh with it. Well, we're this already meshed with it. Karl Marx said, 
he said, uh, you know, when you have capitalism already, uh, human beings are no longer throwing the rope. Human beings are the rope that's thrown. Yeah, exactly. So, from that point of view, I don't, uh, I don't really see. Um, I see things accelerating. You know, you know, the, in terms of the singularity. You know, you've heard of what that is with the. Some people have estimated that by the year 2046, I don't know where they came up with that term, but that our technological infrastructure will have become so aware, it's almost self-aware, that then there will be no way to make any predictions about what will happen past that date because things will accelerate like from zero to 60 in four seconds. We'll go from being in a jalopy to something more like a starship almost overnight. Um, now, you know, in some ways that's wishful thinking by technologists like Ray Kurzweil yeah, to get past our... Yeah, it's got a little our, bit of the Jetsons. Yeah, uh, well, well, even more than Jetsons, character. it's a theological it uh, is. conceit, really, it is. that rather than God coming down uh, on the day of Revelation and the Rapture, that the singularity will come down on the day of whatever confluence of all of these trends and, mm -hmm. and currents, and will make us into different sorts of creatures. Um, yeah, this is one of the ways, reasons why I say that technology is the new religion, the new mythology. Uh, it is, and, and it's not only that, it's a, it's a new mythology much like the Christian mythology. In fact, uh, some philosophers like Jean-Luc Nancy and some other continental philosophers, Giorgio Agamben, are maybe not Agamben so much, but are saying that Christianity is dying, is dead, mm -hmm. basically. But it's dead because this is what it was designed to do. Mm -hmm. Christianity, in some sort of weird historical thinking backward sense, was a thing designed to bring forward where we are now. And then when that happened, then it was no longer necessary. Right. And the body of Christ, so to speak, becomes embodied in our tools and our networks and our ways of resuscitating the dead, you might mm -hmm. say. And historically, this is always what has happened. It's always what's happened, right. Right. Exactly. One mythology is replaced by another. Mm -hmm. It takes what it needs from the old mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, dresses it up in a, you know, different way mm -hmm. and uh, gives it some more uh, baggage to carry and mm -hmm. uh, leaves some behind at the station and then we roll forward with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Christianity, Christmas takes place on pagan holidays, <coughs> uh, various astronomical alignment events and things right. like that. Right. Yeah, I you know I've often, I'm, I often I teach English and humanities, college English and humanities as well as write, and um, you know I've often wondered because certainly students have complained uh, that when uh, you know I I teach um, you know these things that we're talking about how Christianity used old myths um, to mm -hmm. uh, create a new power, and um, why I didn't get in trouble because that's my job. Mm -hmm. My job is to help replace Christianity mm -hmm. with the new mythology. Yeah, exactly. I am the arm of the state. You're, you you, and the entertainment, military, industrial entertainment complex. And if you well, it's not leaving the prisons. Well, yeah, well, if you, if you click in prisons, right. But if you click off the entertainment movies, I'm thinking of Terminator, for example, its arrival from the future as a naked man from the future. I mean, what is more theological than that, mm -hmm. right? Or uh, alien, you know, or just take any of them. The Matrix. The Matrix. They're all gussied up 
treatments of Christianity and theology. Mm -hmm. You don't see many Buddhist no. science fiction films, right? No. I mean, the power, and I'm, I never, you know, I, I dilly-dally a little bit with we Zen Buddhism. We don't see them, but they, there may be a lot that we don't see that, you know, people are watching in Asia. Maybe, but if they are, I would say that they are Western that they're they may be made by Buddhists, but they're Western versions. So, yeah. you know, there's still the, the the whole thing about redemption, resurrection, um, uh, whatever that motor that has driven Christianity and that has turned. I mean, why didn't the Greeks not develop technology? Is often said. You know, well, for one thing, it's because they didn't have this motor that that drove Judeo-Christian activities to some degree, and that out of the economy of the church, and the economy of the church was simply the way that the church was thought to deal with its matters day to day, now the economy has become the whole point, period, to the point that it drives everything. Mm -hmm. It drives the church, it drives technology, it drives the military, it drives us. Um, so the question is not how to change technology necessarily, but how to change the nexus of technology and uh, for lack of a better word, quasi-theological economic concerns. Right, human understanding. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the current structures are dead set against that. Right. So, public domain, you know, always was devoted to sort of examining those kinds of issues in whatever prolix, densified, occultated, esoteric sorts of fashions. In some ways it was um, mimicking, you know, continental or some aspects of different philosophical forms. Um, but, you know, it doesn't really exist anymore <laughs> except through a little bit of Fort Dodd publishing. Now, anyway. Uh, so... Well, thank God uh, for Fort Dodd. Well, I, I, I want to keep it going, and, you know, um, my father always said, please, just write a book. Do write a book someday. Just write a book, you know. So I never, I always, it's the last thing on my mind, you know. But the more that I thought about it, a book is an important thing. It's a, it's an artifact of fire, in mm -hmm. a way. It's something that the net, in some ways, has taken from being an allegory to an actual thing in the way that the pixels and the light works on us. And it's still working on transforming the book into some sort of transcendent entity, I think. Mm -hmm. But right now the book is about as close as you can get to a transcendent entity as one can get, you know, right. even through meditation. I mean, mm -hmm. it, the book gives us the reason why we meditate. I don't mean the book is in the and Bible. It has but. been so since we've started recording history. Right. You know, uh, practitioners of of runes, of writing, mm -hmm. people who could read and write, they had magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and writing itself is a very mysterious, exactly a mysterious magical quality. It's an interface, a scrim between inside us and outside us. And writing can be not just writing on a piece of paper, mm -hmm. but you know, when you read clouds, when you read entrails, when you make prophecies, when you make promises, when you make all kinds of statements, when you when you're, do your bookkeeping, it's, you know, if you get to a certain point in looking at it, it's all very mysterious and magical about what the hell is it? You know, it's what, people don't like to hear this, but it's what separates us from the, from the lower orders, quote unquote, mm -hmm. I use those because there's a lot of 
animal rights and a lot of philosophical thinking and about animals. And certainly we are animals. So. And certainly we are animals also. But I still would disagree with people who say that we're nothing but an animal because we don't even know fully what an animal is. We don't even mm -hmm. know fully what a human is. What is a brain? We don't know. Right. And, and we don't understand how animals communicate with each other. Right. Spinoza said one time that we have little inkling about what the body is capable of. Mm -hmm. And that's from Spinoza, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, we're in for a big journey, but I think, um, maybe this is my early church background, but I think, and also through Walter Benjamin, Walter Benjamin um, I think everybody has to be brought along on the journey. You can't say, these people can go and these people can't. Mm -hmm. So the ethical correlate of historically we, we've always done that. We've always done it, but in order in order to get through the straight gate of whatever gate, it, whether it's the star gate or it's the straight gate of the Bible, or where it is we're headed, everybody has to go, not just the people who are making two hundred million dollars. You know, you can't leave the guy on the street that's pissing on himself in the front of CVS sprawled out. Everybody's got to go. So in that sense, my interest in religion has gotten a little more intense because I th that's what I believe. Now, you know, it's right now it's just a mystical thought. And I've, I've been thinking really a lot more about Fedorov and this whole um, immortalist thing in relation to technology and ethics. And Boris Groves, who is not a stupid, you know, religionist, has written some on Fedorov and the immortalist and that whole project. So maybe Fedorov is right. We not only have to bring everybody that's here now with us, everybody that ever has been has to go with us, wherever it is we're going. I don't even know what that means, but... Uh, yeah, or how anything like that could be I, done. I don't know how that could be done either, but, you know... Especially since it's working backwards, it really seems like, you know, the younger people are becoming more and more ignorant by the year. Right. I am ashamed to say that I taught a class this term, and, and these were my good students, this was my good class, and not a student in it had ever heard, this is embarrassing, of the Ice Age. <laughs> You're kidding. I'm not kidding. What? And I said, this is second grade stuff, y'all. And they said, well, that was a long time ago. Now, what, what, how old were these kids? And these are freshmen in, in college, college. Freshmen in college? Yeah, so they were 18, 19 years old. Well, they got to go too. <laughs> they may gotta, maybe they got to go first. <laughs> but, uh, gosh, I don't know. It's, it's astounding people's ignorance. But then again, I think, you know, continuing with this vein that I'm pumping here, that it's maybe that's not what it's all about. The, the delineation between ignorance, stupidity, and smartness. I mean, there is something good about that, but from an ethical point of view, there can't be anything good about that. Right. You know, except from what reason? To bring those people along with you. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why would you care one way or the other? Mm -hmm. Just let them fall to the wayside. Right. But there is something about everybody being on this march. Mm -hmm. At least that's the way it's made us feel with technology. Everybody's got to march. Like everybody's got to be doing their thing. If we're going to get there in time, like some old war movie, you know, mm -hmm. when the sergeant is patrolling the whole line, the least other than the back, who's he's got him around his shoulders and pulling him along with him. So, 
to me, that seems the main, the number one ethical correlate to all of this. Before you can talk about technology, before you can talk about art, before you can talk about community, about anything, that the people in power, that should be what they're about. You know, not the Palestinians, not the Jews, not the Indians, not the whites, not the blacks, but everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got to go. Mm -hmm. If we're all going to get sick or we're all going to get well, everybody's got to go. Wherever the hell it is we're going, you know. Whatever boat we're getting onto, whatever spaceship we're getting onto, whatever matter transporter we, we're, we're headed for, you know, whatever chamber we're headed for, we all got to go there. And some people may have to be forced to go there. You know, <laughs> I don't know. You think we'll, that'll happen? Do you think we will all go? Uh, well, you know, I think about the caveman from 30,000 years ago. And if someone, some caveman, visionary caveman who'd eaten some Siberian mushrooms kind of to him and said, we have to all go this way, this way. Because that's what the shaman did. He said, this is yeah. the way we got to go, yeah. right? And they said, you're crazy. That's like mountains over there. This, <laughs> we can't do that. The, but the guy knew that the glacier was coming and wiping out everything. So he had to get over the mountains and get to the next region, you right. know, some way, let's say. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we don't know everything. We don't know really where we are. We don't know where we're going. Yeah. Um, That's Noah's story you were just telling us. Yes, yeah, it's just a story. Yeah. I had an uncle died recently uh, whom I loved a lot, and, and he reminded me of my father to some degree. So it makes you think about uh, you know, where you are, where you're going, where you've been, why you should be going there, why you shouldn't be going some places. Nobody wants to, like your students who don't know what the Ice Age is, you know. Yeah. If, you can't, if you don't have these structures that you can think with in these huge allegories, I mean, we're kind of lost, but then again, we are kind of lost, you know, right. as a species. Now, people can mistake, you know, a few people getting on a spaceship and going to Mars as everybody going to Mars mm -hmm. or wherever that mm -hmm. allegorical thing of going out is about. Uh, but that's the smart people doing that, you know, and I don't know how all that other stuff gets fixed or if it does get fixed or people just... Because people die all the time. Maybe that's maybe the maybe the dumb, stupid, crazy people die off, and then then all those people go, you know, at the top of the spear, so to speak, and then they come back and retrieve the other and say, okay, well, this is the way it was supposed to be after all. Mm -hmm. I realize it's all very religious sounding and theological sounding, but that's you know, I think that's what technology is about. Mm -hmm. If you no, think about think the so end too. point, the end point of it, so not too. the point where we are now, but the point from 30,000 years ago to, inconceivably speaking, a thousand years from now. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think, 300 years ago, we had none of this stuff that's surrounding us right now. Nothing, none of it at all. Right. So if you're thinking about uh, another 300 years at the rate we're going now, I mean, I mean, who knows what's possible. But the thing is this. Everybody has to have a hand in, in, like the Snowden guy, you know, who released all the information. Well, everybody deserves to know what's being done to them. Mm -hmm. Amen, brother. Mm -hmm. Everybody deserves to know what's being done to them and where they're going and who's dragging them. Yeah. And why they're looking at me like that. You That's know? right. Everybody, has to, everybody deserves to know all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so if, if that can't happen, the technology for sure will be used to oppress people, to kill people, to... Uh, demoralize people and to dehumanize people. Well, it already does, you know. It already does, but um, because there is an awareness of it, it kind of gives me hope 
uh, that you know in what you're saying that uh, that that it's possible that it's possible to bring maybe not everyone mm-hmm. but a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, as many I mean, you got to have you got to have hopes. You know? yeah. And like some people, you say, well, I wouldn't want to bring them along. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Some people that you know, you know, but but then that's that those that's that's the same thing that's killing us yeah, that's in it. other parts of the exactly. world, you know. Yeah. So you can't think like that, but maybe you can think like that in practical terms, the way you live your life, you know, sometimes you just, you know, you can't go pick up the drunk on the quarter who's peeing in his pants and take care of him, right? right? But somehow there's Personally, there are some people you just can't deal with. Right. I mean, that's always going to be... But morally, you understand, and ethically you understand sure. that these people are the same as you, exactly. See, and my, my fear is that these people with the very tops of these corporations don't have that understanding. It's clear to me that they do not. Right. So, so I think it's one of the reasons we love Iron Man because Iron Man does know that. Yeah, and he's trying to rectify some of those, uh, and the superhero in general, which is also has theological providence. There's yeah. been a very interesting book by Jeffrey Jeffrey, Jeffrey uh, Cripple Cripple about that. Oh, they're all based on they're all based on Norse and um, mm-hmm. and uh, Mesopotamian gods. Right. Marduk and Thor, especially. So to bring it back, I don't think we got a whole lot of time left. But to bring it back to Fort Da, that you know the the theme of Fort Da, like Freud's baby in the cradle, throwing the spindle out and saying Fort gone, and then Da with the question of our question, is it really come back? Mm-hmm. I mean that seems to be a um, you know something there had to do with what the human predicament is about. Can we throw the spindle so far out of the cradle that we don't even can ever get it back? That is, can we throw part of ourselves so far out that we can become another sort of creature? Because the creature I was just talking about wanted to bring everybody back, you know, blah blah blah. That ain't a human. Right. That's something else. Now that may be a machine human of some sort. Because the old human is is uh, you know it's a pretty sometimes reprehensible creature. Right. Not not a pleasant. Thing to be around in some right. circumstances, uh, and yet other times, you know, it's either the ape of heaven or the angel of heaven, mm-hmm. uh, and you never know which one you're going to get. That's right. So sometimes the, you you don't want to bring it back, and sometimes you want to let it go and release it for good. But it's a kind of a primal thing we operate inside our heads all the time. Should I get rid of this? Should I forget about it? Should I let it go? Should I remember it? Should I keep it? Should I put it in a keep safe drawer? Should I take it with me on the trip? Should I, you know? Um, so all of those kinds of questions are sort of endemic to the Fort Dot Publishing Project. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I think we're about out of time. I don't know where we went on this uh, travel that we went on here. Well, but, it was uh, fun, and uh, I enjoyed it, and I learned a lot.